Would you join me for the pray prayer for illumination? People of the living God, teach our hearts this day and inspire our lips to say good news with the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our scripture today is Joel 2:28. Then afterward, I will pull out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. The word of God for the people of God. that quote that it's out on the edge that we get a better picture of things, right? It's only after we've lived life for a certain time, after we've had certain experiences, that we gain a clarity about things. Uh, a couple of moments of personal privilege, if you would, be in prayer for uh, Pastor uh, Peter as he and his family are recovering from illness. Uh, and then we also have uh, 12 men who were on a men's retreat this past weekend. And uh, Jake, who runs our media uh, in our booth, was grateful enough to drive me home from Livingston very sleepily in the wee hours of the morning. Uh, so uh, a bunch of uh, our other guys will be coming back today from that men's retreat. And if you see anyone who went on that men's retreat, just ask them uh, how it was. And I encourage you um, to think about going yourself. If you're a gentleman, uh, we'll be having a men's retreat again next year, probably that last week in February. And it was a fantastic time. So last week I talked a little bit about the mentors I had in my life. Um, the ones who were sort of formal mentors, right? Maybe they started off as a professor of mine or a teacher, and then it evolved into more of um, kind of a, a relational uh, journey with them. Uh, and then others were, uh, they had no sort of formal stance in my life as a teacher or a professor. They were just people that I admired. And I came up to them and said, I think you know how to do this well. Will you, will you mentor me? Um, and I shared sort of about my relationship with them. And do I remember everything that they taught me? No, <laughs> like, not in the slightest bit, right? And it's sort of like, um, do you ever remember every sermon that you hear from me? Yes, right, all the time. No, you don't, you don't, it's okay. I'm convinced, right, and you've heard this before, that more is caught than taught. Uh, but what we teach is so important. Who we sit next to, who mentors us is so important because we're listening. Right? They sort of rub up, uh, up against us. They rub off on us, and they begin to transform us. And we, we hear their words. We see how they react. Uh, who is mentoring us and who we mentor is so important in this dance of generations. And I begin to think and question and wonder why these relationships that I had with all these mentors, why it was so important. Like, what were the key elements of a good mentoring relationship for me? And the first was probably the material that we discussed and that we covered. Um, you know, talking about my identity or talking about my personality, it might not have been entirely helpful when I was 14 or 18 or 23 or 33, right? It might not have been entirely helpful then in that moment, but it's been helpful over the years to have that ongoing discussion. So the, the material that we talked about, yes, was essential and was important. And it made those relationships important. It also provided a, a sense of trust, and it built this kind of courage between us. And so to this day, there are mentors who I, I haven't talked to in years, but then something comes up, 
and I say, I need to lean on Andy, or I need to lean on Steve here, or I need to lean on on Alice. And so I'll I'll call them and I'll say, hey, I'm running into this problem, and I'll talk it out with them. It builds a sense of trust in our relationship. And the third, that relationship is built over time. That's why mentoring is, is so important. It builds relationships. Um, if you're familiar with Sticky Faith, uh, it comes out of Full Youth Institute. They tell us that youth, um, after they graduate high school, about half are going to walk away and, and never step foot in the church again, and half are going to stay. And those of you who are optimistic are saying, all right, we got half, right? The other half who are more like me are saying, that's not good enough. And we're looking to solutions on ways to, to keep youth plugged in with their faith. And one of those things is we've identified that they need five loving adults who they can trust, five mentors who are not mom and dad, who are not the pastor, right? They need five mentors to be walking alongside them, to show up at their band concerts, to show up at their, at their athletic events and to root for them and just to be there and support them in their life. And I would go farther to say it is not just youth who need five caring adults but it's also all of us. We all need people who are mentoring, guiding us, and shaping us, who are older and younger, and it helps flesh us out in beautiful ways. I did not recently receive this letter, but sometimes the, the act of mentoring is something that doesn't pay off for a long, long, long time. When I first uh, went to a, a church in Cincinnati called Westwood, it's Procter & Gamble's historic church, in this uh, really nice part of town in Cincinnati. I was a youth pastor there, and I had a boy in my youth group. His name was Ethan. And Ethan's about this tall at the time, right? Now Ethan's probably like this tall, went to the University of Alabama. Uh, but he was this big at the time. And I just sort of met with his mom once or twice. We hung out, and he was in my youth group. Uh, and it wasn't until probably 10 years later that I got a letter from Ethan. And he was sharing about how my relationship with my wife was such a positive model for him in his life. How my listening ear, he really appreciated that during his formative years. Sometimes the work of mentoring young people does not pay off automatically, right? And you don't get that thank you until a decade later. I've been there. And I think the lesson that we can learn from that is if you have a mentor in your life and you have not told them thank you for what they've done, that is the next step for you today, right? You can go home, you can send them the Facebook message, you can send them a text, you can, send them, you can go down to like the post office and get a stamp, they sell them there, right? You can get an envelope and it's called a piece of paper. You can write a letter and put it in and mail it to them. And it, it is just so meaningful for those mentors to finally receive uh, a sense of affirmation, a sense that what they did really was meaningful and powerful in your life. So I encourage you to do that. Most of you last week said that you'd had a mentor. You talked about how it had impacted your life. Uh, And last week, most of you said that you benefited from that relationship. Again, we don't remember everything they say, but being a part of that relationship is so important. And so our passage today comes from the book of Joel. And I know some of you were thinking, I know exactly where Joel is. And others were saying, there's a book of the Bible called Joel? Right? It's okay. You're not alone. I want to talk a little bit about kind of this passage as we sit with it, as we wrestle with it, and where we can find it, some things about it. The first is where is it? Right? It's in that big chunk of the Bible that we usually skip over. Right? It's called the Old Testament, and it's situated in something even more uh, fine called the Minor Prophets, which is just a hilarious title. 
right? It's like the minor leagues and the major leagues. Like these poor prophets just are still in the farm leagues. They just can't get out. They haven't gotten the call to come like preach for Jerusalem. They haven't gotten it, right? That's the minors. Uh, but really, they're called the minor prophets because of the length of the material. You have the major prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. And if you tried to read those books, you got some patience, right? They're like 60 chapters long, 50 chapters long. They're huge. And you can read Joel in an afternoon, right? You can read the book of Jonah, who's a minor prophet, in the afternoon, right? Uh, so Joel, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. Those are some of the minor prophets. And you can find them in the back of the Old Testament, right before the New Testament. When was it written? Probably doesn't matter a whole lot for our conversation, but it's helpful to sort of know. You can put a pin on a, a timeline when you encounter the text, where it was written or when it was written. And we date most things in the Bible by other uh, pieces of evidence. And so when you read the book of Daniel, right, you'll come across King Nebuchadnezzar ruled in Babylon. And we go, oh, well, there was a historical dig with King Nebuchadnezzar's name, so we can date the book of Daniel sort of by this approximation of evidence. There's nothing like that in Joel. There's no, it was the Pharaoh's rule, or it was this king's rule, and there's nothing. It's just a letter to Israel, and so we don't have, it's hard to date it. Probably 900 to 400 B.C., if you're interested in those facts. There you go, right? So 900 to 400 B.C. is probably about when it was written. And what is it about? What does the, the book of Joel cover? Well, the first thing that the book of Joel talks about is this lament about a plague in the land and the promise of a coming blessing. And so as I read this passage, as I hear these words, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young shall see visions. As I hear those words, that's the promise to come to the people of God. I'm struck by a few things in particular. First, it says sons and daughters shall, prophes shall prophesy. It's the indiscriminate spirit of God. And so ladies, I don't mean to be rude, but if you were a lady in the first century, or we'll just say in the ancient world, you were maybe a person, right? You didn't have any legal standing. You couldn't do a whole lot without your husband. And so imagine reading this. When was it written? In like 400, 900 BC, and you hear these words, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. You should, you'd be like, this is a typo, <laughs> right? Women cannot prophesy. Clearly, this is a typo. And that's how radical the Bible is at times, right? It turns our cultural assumptions upside down and shakes us. And this is how radical the Spirit of God is, that it indiscriminately says it doesn't matter if you're a guy or a gal, God's Spirit falls on you nonetheless. Will you receive God's Spirit no matter what gender you are? That's the radicalness of the Spirit of God, that it's indiscriminate in the best possible way. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. It gets even a little more um, radical, I think. It says that you're old and you're young shall dream visions. Doesn't matter how old you are, you don't need to kind of reach a particular age, and then all of a sudden you get the vision. No. Like, you can be three, and God's going to give you a vision. You can be 300, and God's going to give you a vision. You're old and you're young will have visions. So when I read that passage, I see a beautiful tapestry unfolding, a fuller picture of the community of God as one that involves not only just the elderly, but also the young. So the title of this sermon is The Dance of the Generations, and it raises a couple questions for me. Why 
do we need the young and the old? Wouldn't it be better if just the Spirit of God fell on the wise and the old and the rich, right? Then we could just listen to that, and it would be fine. We'd be done. We'd know where to go. But it's indiscriminate. It falls on all the community of God. I think the first is we need to wrestle with the responsibility of the older generation to lead the younger generation, right? They have to lean in and not disengage. I think the temptation as we become older is to disengage and to say, yeah, you know what? You, uh, I did my time. I cut my teeth. I, I, I'm in, invested, and you, you, you do you now. Like, you, you know, you got to earn your own. That's the temptation as we get older is to disengage. And where, perhaps what we need to do is re-engage and lean in. That the old have so much to offer the young. It is the responsibility of the older generation to lead those who are coming up because we have lessons to teach them. Right? If, they, if we are not careful, we will repeat the mistakes that history has taught us in the past. We need the lessons from the greatest generation, lest we repeat things that go down that road. We need to listen and sit at the feet of people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he teaches us about what happened in the middle of the 20th century. We have to wrestle with that and learn from him. We need to hear those lessons. We need to hear the lessons of people who served in Vietnam, people who served in Korea, and listen to their voices so that we do not repeat those mistakes. The younger generation needs to hear the voices of the people who sat through the 2008 Great Recession and what came from that and the lessons learned. It is the responsibility of the older generation to guide the younger generation so that past mistakes are not repeated. And that is something that the older generation offers the younger generation. And this raises the question for me then, okay, if that's what we offer, if we offer our wisdom as an older generation, what does the younger generation have to offer us? If mentoring, teaching, and walking hand-in-hand hand is a two-way street, what does the younger generation have to offer us? And for that, I want to pull from this book, Parker Palmer, On the Brink of Everything. It's the title of this series. And he talks about that a little bit. So here are these words. Rather than enumerating all the gifts the young have to offer, I'll close by naming one more that too often goes unseen and unsung. Unlike many folks my age, Parker talking here, who's a little bit older than me, the young people I work with waste no time grieving the collapse of the old order of the religious, educational, vocational, and political structures that helped form their elders' lives. When today's young adults were born, many of those institutions were well on their way to becoming dysfunctional. Instead of bemoaning what's on its way out or already gone, many of the young adults I know are inventing forms of work and life that hold great promise. From political movements to religious life to staying connected in community of meaning to church, they're also crafting independent careers and creating alternative workplaces declaring their freedom from corporations that force people into rigid roles and treat their employees as replaceable cogs in a machine. That freedom allows them to be loyal to their own gifts and visions and to the relationships required to bring those visions to life. I find it inspiring to hang out with people who aren't bemoaning the loss of what no longer serves us well. Instead, they're exploring possibilities that we, young and old together, can midwife 
into life. He goes on and talks about a book that he'd written in an essay, and then he pulls from there, although he says this, which I think is funny. He says, now that I'm old enough to mix metaphors without caring what my English teacher says, I'm going to quote from the book. And this is what he says. Mentors and apprentices are partners in an ancient human dance. And one of teaching's great rewards is the daily chance it gives us to get back on the dance floor. It is the dance of the spiraling generations in which the old empower the young with their experience, and the young empower the old with new life, reweaving the fabric of the human community as they touch and turn. Either way, orchestra or dance, intergenerational rhythms can move our hearts, our minds, and our feet, and might even help move the world to a better place. And that's what the young have to offer us. Do they not? No matter what age they are. We are better when we have each other. We need the wisdom of each other. We need the wisdom of each other. When I was serving at a church in Colorado, I was out in the field, and they had uh, asked, uh, I don't know, it was a party, like a bonfire or something, and I was sort of bored, because I don't do well at parties. I got to do something. And uh, I walked over and found this big stack of wood, and there was an ax there, and I began splitting lumber. Uh, and sure enough, some people began to gather around this strange site. I didn't know it was strange, but apparently a lot of my peers don't know how to split wood. Who knew? And then I had this moment, I was like, why do you not know how to split wood? And then I was like, well, I guess they never had the opportunity before. And who better to teach them than the guy holding the ax, right? And so I began teaching them. We need each other. We need each other to, to walk alongside and guide us and to show us things that other people have done that others still have yet to do. I was uh, serving at a church in California in this uh, very, very rich county uh, with private beaches that were gated. And this church would go and they would serve lower income areas by mowing yards for folks. Uh, did you know that rich white folk don't know how to mow their own yard? <laughs> right? It's a true thing, right? And I was like, what do you mean you don't know how to mow your own yard? That's right. We've walked different paths, and that's okay. Let me show you how. This is called a lawnmower, right? You pull it like this, and you walk behind it. And they were like, that's it? That's it. That's all you got to do. But really, we need each other. We need each other. We need to walk alongside each other, teach each other, listen to each other, be humble enough to receive instruction, and be graceful enough to teach it lovingly. We need each other. When young sit at the feet of those who have journeyed, we learn so much more from each other. Us older folk must handle that responsibility gracefully. And when we do, it is truly beautiful. And so where do we go from here? What are some next steps for us to take and to consider as we talk about this dance of the generations and the old and the young? It's so much in the water here at Chapelwood as we seek to raise a generation in faith. But what are some tangible things for you to do from this moment? First, if you are over 30, you have to pay it forward, right? You've already benefited from teachers, mentors, counselors, and folks in the community. If you are over 30, you have to pay it forward and mentor other people. You can't just go, look at all the good things that I'm receiving. Please lift me up and I'll do great things. No, you have to pay it forward, reach back and say, come, let me teach you as well. That's what we have to do as we dance together in this huge, uh, beautiful tapestry that is the church. If you're over 30, pay it forward. If you are retired, you have to refire. You cannot sit on your laurels and wait until you die. 
right? You have to lean in. And some of you do a beautiful job of this. And I know it is hard because my folks have retired and they're like, what do I do now? My mom is teaching Sunday school, youth Sunday school. She is not like trained in youth ministry, right? You have to lean in. I know it's scary, but for those of you who have retired, you have to refire. You cannot sit on your laurels and wait till the end. You have to lean in, refire, and focus your efforts in a way that is beautiful and helpful for the community. Your wisdom is too invaluable. Some of you have 40 years experience, and I only have 15. Right? We need your wisdom. You cannot sit there and say, oh, I, I, I could totally do it better. Right? You have to lean in. And we'll gracefully say, yes, teach, lead. We need you. We need you. Your wisdom is too invaluable. And you have to be humble enough to know that you still have more to learn from the younger generation as well. If you're younger, right? If you are younger, here's what you can do. You have to look for a mentor. You have to ask. And that's scary and hard because it means humbling yourself. It means you see somebody else doing something that you want to do one day. Maybe they lead a meeting in a way that you're like, how did they do that? They actually empowered people and we got stuff done? That's crazy. Maybe I should ask them and say, will you Will you teach me? Or maybe they know the Bible better than you. They're quoting stuff, and you're like, I didn't even know there was a book of Joel, right? <laughs> will, you, will, you, will you sit down and have a Bible study with me? Will you teach me? Will you walk with me? Or maybe you see someone whose prayer life is so powerful. Just say, will you, will you teach me how, how to pray? Will you teach me kind of, do you have any resources that you can, like, equip me with? If you are young, you need to ask for a mentor. And that involves a lot of courage, and I promise you, I've never heard anyone say, Nope, not going to mentor you, right? They're waiting to be asked. But it just takes courage on your part if you are a young one. You have to ask. And so may both the old be courageous and graceful and humble, and the young as we dance together and live out God's kingdom here in Lake Jackson. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.